0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
3: I'm John Fort, and here is What's Ahead. A cyber attack on Microsoft software attributed to China has the administration scrambling for a response. We will speak with the company that discovered the flaw about what the next step should be. Plus, hedge fund giant David Tepper getting bullish on stocks, saying it's difficult to be bearish. Does that mean rising rates are no longer a threat? And a new tech dynamic shaping up this year. Goodbye to the hot momentum stocks and hello to the old legacy ones. But we begin with today's markets. Dom Chu,
4: with numbers. John Ford, where does Apple fall into that? Because I'm going to show you something interesting here is as soon as we go over these markets we're near the session highs right now up 600 points for the Dow Industrials 32,000 almost 100 at this point The S&P, 3874, up about uh, 7 tenths, 8 tenths of 1%. And then the Nasdaq continuing that trend in technology stocks, underperforming down by about two-thirds of 1% there. The reason why I ask about Apple and the new versus old is because take a look at Apple shares right now. They are now still down almost 3% in trading today, despite the move up in the Dow. Remember, Apple's a Dow component, also a very large component of the S&P, the biggest one, and the Nasdaq 100 as well. So again, that year-to-date decline 11% for Apple shares, one of the bigger drags so far on an otherwise up day. Is it big old tech or is it new tech? I don't know, but watch Apple shares. The big deal there playing out. Also watch transportation stocks because that's what's helping to carry a lot of the momentum to the upside. The iShares Dow Jones Transportation Index, ticker IYT, is up 2.5%. It gets, again, a gold star because it hit a record high in trading so far today. So that reopening trade, again, moving forward with a lot of those companies that transport the goods and services that we come to expect. And then one other place to watch. Just when you thought it was all over, check out what's happening with GameStop. Yes, that GameStop, ticker GME, up 45% right now. Why, do you ask? Because earlier today, the company announced that current board member and Chewy co-founder and billionaire investor Ryan Cohen is going to start leading an initiative within this company's board to transform it into an e-commerce company. That was a catalyst that got those shares surging to the upside. Remember, 193 but at one point, remember, a $480 stock intraday during the regular session, John. GameSpot, once again in focus here, I'll send things back over to you.
3: <laughs> Dom, thank you. Well, let's go back to those bullish comments from David Tepper this morning. They are helping to drive the action. Tepper said to expect surging bond yields to stabilize and stocks, therefore, to move higher from here. This with the 10-year climbing to 1.6% today. So should investors be putting all fears aside, gearing up for the bulls to keep charging? For more, let's welcome in uh, Chris uh, Grassanti, the chief equity strategist at MAI Capital Management, and uh, Melda Mergin, uh, deputy global head of equities at Columbia Threadneedle Investments. Guys, welcome. Um, Melda, so what do you do here with these big, uh, richly valued at this point stocks that not only seem to be more at risk from uh, th- these rising yields, but also make up uh, a pretty heavy weight in the S&P?
5: Yes, there is definitely a portion of the market uh, where the valuations are stretched, and we are very cal- careful with those. Uh, these are high multiple stocks, especially when they don't have earnings. They are supported by the low interest rates, and that cohort is a big um, area of focus for us, and we are generally underweighting those those stocks. But we don't really expand that to the overall market. Um, there are companies still in the growth universe justify their multiples because they have earnings potentials. And we will continue to invest in those secular trend uh, winners.
3: So, Chris Grisanti though, I mean, what do you do if you are uh, a retail investor, longer term, who's got a bunch of money in index funds, as many do, because that's what they tell retail investors to do? And you're going to probably experience some turbulence in those because of, of the heavier weighting toward those very sorts of stocks that we're now hearing to avoid.
6: Sure, John. Well, first, thanks for having me. Second, um, I think it's important for retail investors to take a deep breath, and stick to their plan, but also to recognize that we've entered a a new, this is, I'm calling this last week in the market, the first post COVID market that we've had. For the first time we're looking ahead to a vaccinated world, things are growing much faster. You no longer need the security of these certain earnings uh, winners like uh, Facebook and an Apple. Um, Having said that, I think that the rotation has gone a bit too far. And so before you panic, I would take a deep breath and and just like Medla said, uh, look at the earnings. And I think they're coming through.
3: Well, um, Melda, one of the ways that we're not going to be post-COVID is having to deal with the fallout from all of this spending that is occurring during this period to try to drive the economy out of this. What do you think the impact is going to be, whether it's uh, higher taxes, cuts to spending, efforts, further efforts to drive growth, if that's even possible, all of the above?
5: There's definitely pent up demand. So we think the spending is going to be strong in the next nine to 12 months. The taxes, especially if the tax reform comes through on the high end of the income, that's going to be negative for the market. But we generally expect the spending to go on with the fiscal stimulus package coming through. And especially in the areas where the consumer has been really quiet with travel and entertainment. So that will stay strong in our opinion in the next nine to 12 months.
3: So, Chris, we we see Disney surging today. That's one of the hottest components of the Dow. Is it time to really look at the reopening trade even more closely and who benefits there or no?
6: Uh, Definitely, John. And and I think Disney is the perfect poster uh, boy or girl for uh, what's uh, what we're looking at ahead, which is we'd love to have high quality stocks that are also economically sensitive. Of course, the markets anticipated this, so they're kind of picked over now. But I would look in the travel area. I would look in the entertainment area. Comcast is kind of a hidden play like that because they have the theme parks and things like that. But I would say again, this last week has given us some opportunities in what I call rotation victims, and you know, Facebook, the PayPal, the Home Depot that have been left behind, and I think those are, are just as uh, tempting right now because they've been their their relative valuations are as attractive as they've been in the last year. And Comcast is the parent company of this network, I will point out. Uh, Melda, um, you think
3: small caps have a particular potential here?
5: Yes, small caps usually really benefit from the domestic economy growing, and it will not not be an exception this time around. And value, as we discuss as a cyclical rotation, definitely uh, is is going to benefit. So small cap value, also mid cap value too. So the value spectrum is interesting. Small caps specifically also affected by, um, to most people's surprise, is with the global economy too. And expecting global economy to start improving from here, they have another support point.
3: OK, Melda Mergen and Chris Grisanti. Thank you. Well, it has been a year since the pandemic began to take its toll on the U.S. economy, and since then, Washington has put to work a record amount of money to backstop the economy. And there's even more on the way. Elon Moy joins us with more on that. Elon.
7: Well, John, we are now at four trillion dollars and counting, and that has already pushed the deficit to a record of nearly 15 percent of GDP last year. This year, it's estimated to be just over 10 percent of GDP, the second highest level ever. And all this red ink is going to be with us for a while. Take a look at the national debt, going all the way back to the Great Depression. It topped out at about the size of the economy during World War II, and it's now set to blow past that milestone by 2031. If nothing changes, it'll just keep going up until the debt is double the size of the economy in 2051. Now, keep in mind, this is all before you factor in the additional $1.9 trillion from the current COVID relief package. Add that in as well as the likely extension of individual tax cuts and the fact that spending is probably going to grow with inflation and projections for the size of the debt jumped to 259 percent of GDP over the next generation. These numbers are starting to weigh on lawmakers, not just Republicans, but also moderate Democrats who successfully pushed to scale back parts of this new package. That could factor into the discussions of what comes after this COVID relief bill. And John, how big it'll be. Back to you. I
3: mean, that seems kind of like cutting back on eating out when you just took on like a trillion dollar mortgage. I don't know how far that goes. So uh, Peter Buchvar at Bleakley Advisory Group had an interesting note this morning saying it's going to be hard for the Fed to taper from here because of this um, massive amount of treasury supply to pay for the spending. So it, it seems like in the past there's been this battle between cutting spending, raising taxes and fueling growth as the way to solve this. Are we now in the position where it's got to be all of the above?
7: Well, I think that, John, your point about, you know, getting the Diet Coke along with the Big Mac and the supersized meal is a really good one. And I think the problem that we're seeing right now in Washington is, you're right, the policy prescription would be cut spending and raise new revenue. The fact of the matter is, though, that lawmakers only talk want to talk about one side of the ledger or the other. And we're in an environment now where there is uh, control of Washington by one party, right? And they can push through the type of legislation they want to see. They don't necessarily need pay-fors, in Washington speak, to go along with the spending that they're proposing. Now, there is some discussion amongst the moderates of, you know, are there ways to offset parts of this package? But certainly, I think that Democrats are not looking to offset the entire cost of the next big legislative package, likely to be infrastructure. There may be some revenue raisers in there, such as an increase in the corporate tax rate. Um, But I think there is a much uh, bigger appetite for living with larger amounts of debt than there used to be. Hmm. And I think that the pandemic period uh, showed Democrats that you can do this, at least for now, without fears of inflation heating up.
3: But what does Joe Manchin want? That, that is going to be the question, I think. Uh, Elon Moy, thank you. And now coming up, a new major cybersecurity breach of Microsoft services has been linked to hackers in China. Wall Street and Washington now scrambling to figure out the next move. We're going to speak with the company that discovered that breach ahead. Plus, the number of women in the workforce saw a huge decline amid the pandemic. We're going to look at the numbers and what we can do to fix it as the economy attempts to achieve a new normal. And now let's take a look at the Dow 30 heat map. We're now pretty much at session highs, up 600 points. Disney, Cisco, Visa leading. Apple and Microsoft are your laggards. The exchange back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. President Biden signing an executive order to establish a gender policy council today to tackle the structural issues that have made women bear the disproportionate economic uh, impact of this COVID pandemic. Wells Fargo Securities is out with a report on the unequal fallout. A staggering one million more women have lost employment than men. And perhaps more troubling is that women in their main working years have left the labor force at almost twice the rate of men. Joining us now with details of that report is Sarah House, Senior Economist for Wells Fargo Securities. Uh, Sarah, great to have you. And it seems to me there are so many factors at play here, starting with – doesn't have to start with this, but it does for me – the burden of family care has fallen disproportionately on women still. School buildings still not open. Older parents requiring care uh, for younger children. Child care is often unpredictable. Just with that, how much of an impact can you tell uh, is that factor? I think
8: that is the the primary factor in this downturn. So industries have played a role to some extent, but I think when you look at it and look at really what's happened to labor force participation in particular, you can see that burden of, of child care and broader family care. To your point about you know elderly parents, that falls disproportionately on women as well. So if we look at the decline in labor force participation since COVID for men with children, it's been about six tenths of a percentage point. For women with children, though, it's been four tenths times that. It's been a decline of 2.4 percentage points. And so that really underscores just the disproportionate toll that those family responsibilities have taken on women's labor force participation over COVID.
3: And this isn't some, you know, niche story here. The the U.S. economic growth of the past 50 years has been fueled so much by women participating so much more than in the past. And we're talking now about all this spending that we're embarking on to get out of this pandemic, the need for growth, the need for new revenue, that's got to come from women participating, right?
8: Absolutely. So this is really a story about how do we grow the economy on a long-term sustainable basis. So we are going to see the strongest growth in roughly a generation this year, but so much of that is on the backs of this fiscal stimulus, not on a long-term sustainable path. In order to get the economy growing more than just that anemic 2% rate we've experienced over the past decade, we are going to need to see things like stronger productivity growth and stronger labor force participation. Women's labor force participation had actually recovered um, prior, to, prior to the COVID downturn from the Great Recession, whereas men's prime participation had not. And so women were, were really driving this turnaround and been a huge source of, of labor force growth over the past few decades. And that stands to that those efforts stand to really be dentured, dented by the discouragement and uh, repercussions when it comes from taking time out of the labor force and, and going back to work. So there are long-term penalties from, from taking time out of the workforce, which could dent women's uh, return to the labor market.
3: So based on that, a little bit of an odd question maybe, are childcare and perhaps more uniform and understandable standards for schools, um, you know, building quality, uh, pushing back against teachers unions sometimes that say we're not going to come to work, are those infrastructure Because without those, it seems uh, mostly women, just because of the way our culture is, uh, at this point at least, aren't going to be able to have a reliable path back into the workforce.
8: I think our childcare and educational systems make it very hard for households to have two full-time working parents. So that usually means that the women te- the women tend to take a more of a backseat in their careers. So whether that's working part time or even just having to work in a job that maybe offers more more flexible hours, I think plays into that. And so much of that has to do with just the school hours, school holidays, the fact that we don't we don't have a, a system um, to help support early childhood education. So as a result, we have very expensive childcare options. And so that can make it uh, that can make it very difficult for uh, a household to have two full time working parents where it's just not affordable. And so I think that the education system definitely plays a role in this. And and COVID has really shined a light on just how difficult it makes to have two full time working parents in a household.
3: Yeah. Well, the market seems to be betting on a strong and enduring rebound. That means we're going to have to figure some of this stuff out. Sarah House, thank you. Now, coming up, what's old is new again, at least when it comes to tech stocks. The old legacy names are dominating the gains this year, while the shiny new ones falling a bit flat. Why is that? And can it last? Plus, the U.S. hit a record for daily COVID vaccinations this weekend. But one trend that may be starting to emerge, people not showing up for their second dose. We got that story next. People today
7: can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older like a family vacation, or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today
9: at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
3: Welcome back to the exchange. Take a look at the markets right now. The Dow hitting an all-time intraday high. It was up about 650 points. Just a little off that now. Let's check the sectors. Materials, financials, industrials, and utilities are your winners. Tech, the only sector lower. Now, here's some of the movers this hour. Bank stocks Rallying on the back of rising rates, regional bank ETF, KRE, hitting an intraday all-time high. And the reopening trade back in action today with cruise lines, casinos, and restaurant stocks getting a boost. And speaking of reopening, look at some of the retail names. Big Lots, Bed Bath & Beyond, Capri, and Foot Locker up 7% or more. Look, Big Lots up big, a lot, almost 10%. Uh, Once again today, it's the fifth straight negative session, uh, now down 31% in the past month. Uh, Now to Rahel Solomon for uh, the CNBC News update. I was talking about Tesla there. Rahel.
10: Hi John, hello everyone. Well, there is uncertainty today over exactly when jury selection will begin in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chopin. It was scheduled to start today, but it's on hold, likely until at least tomorrow. This is amid court appeals over whether the government can add a third degree murder charge in the death of George Floyd Chauvin is already accused of second-degree murder. Former President Donald Trump's legal efforts to challenge Joe Biden's election results are now officially over. The U.S. Supreme Court declining to hear Trump's appeal over the Wisconsin vote, and there are no other cases pending. With an estimated 17 million viewers in the U.S. alone for last night's Oprah Winfrey interview with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, there are plenty of opinions about their accusations of lack of support with hints of racism from the royal establishment, but Prime Minister Boris Johnson mostly keeping his opinions to himself.
3: I've always had the highest admiration for the Queen and the unifying role that she plays in our country and across the Commonwealth. And as for uh, the rest, all other matters to do with the royal family, uh, I've spent a long time. Uh, now not uh, commenting on uh, royal family matters, and I don't intend uh, to depart from that today.
10: And tonight on the news with Shepherd Smith, how the interview is playing out with the rest of the British public. But John, as you know, lots of uh, buzz on social media. Of course, also about Oprah's job as an interviewer, with people saying that Oprah is our queen. So um, lots more to come there, John. I'll send it
3: back to you. Oprah has been distinguishing herself as an interviewer for a long time. Rahel, thank you. And the U.S. is now on track to have enough vaccine supply for every American adult by May. That's great news if you live in the U.S., but abroad, story's not the same. Meg Terrell joins me with more. Meg.
1: Hey, John. And folks are worried that if other countries don't also get access to COVID-19 vaccines, it could prolong the pandemic around the world. As you mentioned, here in the U.S., we should have enough vaccine for every American adult by the end of May. Um, That's about 500 million doses we should have from Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson. To put that into comparison, the COVAX facility, which the World Health Organization is helping implement to get vaccines to lower- and middle-income countries, they'll have about half that many doses from AstraZeneca to distribute to 100 in that time period. According to a Duke University analysis, rich countries with about 16% of the world's population have acquired about half the world's vaccine doses. You can see a breakdown here uh, of countries by high or upper middle income uh, versus the low and lower middle, um, a major difference here. And we are hearing from experts warning that the variants pose even more of a risk here because as they continue circulating around the globe, If those populations are not vaccinated, the risk of new variants spreading to other countries that are vaccinated uh, gets higher. Um, An economist analysis shows that some lower-income countries may not uh, have a majority of their population having access to vaccines until 2023, and so the risk could continue to persist. Now, one suggestion, of course, is that as rich countries have overpurchased vaccines, Um, they could then give the extra either to COVAX or to other nations that need access, John. So a lot of calls here for more equity, not just because it's the right thing to do, but in terms of enlightened self-interest. John?
3: Now, Meg, I seem to remember several months ago there being talk about not prioritizing giving people the second dose of the vaccine in order to get enough people vaccinated overall. But now the concern seems to have shifted that people who are up for their second dose and the dose is there for them Aren't taking it. What's going on?
1: This has been a hugely hot topic, you know, especially as the UK has spread out the doses in order to give the first dose to more people. Here in the United States, public health officials are saying, no, you need your second dose of the Moderna or the Pfizer vaccines on time, three or four weeks, and not after six weeks. Um, We have heard from a number of states, there are a certain number of people that have not yet come back for their follow-up dose. And so that would be a concern in terms of being considered fully vaccinated. And of course, we just got the CDC's guidance for what people can do when they're fully vaccinated. You only get there for the Pfizer and Moderna shots if you get both doses, John.
3: Yeah. Well, my my parents in their 70s and 80s just got their second dose over the weekend, and they're feeling great. So uh, get your second dose, people. Meg, thank you. While many Americans are now vaccinated, some of them are under vaccinated. Got one shot, as we were just talking about, but did not return for their second. Michael Dowling is CEO of Northwell Health, which has given more than 194,000 vaccinations, including the first in the U.S. back in December. But at least 3,500 of those people are now more than 42 days late for their second dose. Um, Michael, thank you for being with us. What's the reason that you're getting, if you have any sense of this for why people aren't coming for their second dose? Is it concerns, You know, there's, especially with Moderna, uh, about the, the side effects and people feeling bad after the second one?
2: Well, I think it's a combination of all of those. I don't think you can just pick one thing and say that is it. But I also think we have to be careful about what we say in the press, because over the last couple of weeks, there have been stories about how you know the one-dose vaccine is going to be good enough and so I'm sure some people out there were saying, well, I got the first dose, and I've been just reading a story here on the news that maybe the one dose is sufficient, is sufficient, so maybe I don't need to go back to get the second one. So there is so much information out there, and sometimes we report on a lot of information without having the definitive answers on these things. So it's the, it's, it's that, that, I think, is a reason. It's also, I think, people get busy, people forget. Uh, people decide, well, the, the first dose is good enough, so I don't need to get the second dose. So what we're doing is we're reaching out to all of those people. About 3% of the people that we have given vaccination to have not come back for the second dose. That's almost 3,000 people. So we're reaching out to all of them, uh, making direct contact, just to convince them that it's important for them to come back and get the second dose. So it's right. an ongoing process, and that will continue.
3: Now, uh, there, there were some stories also about the efficacy of one dose, I think, to encourage people that there would be some protection. And I guess that, that, that's a concern at this point, because if you get too many people who only got the one dose, they could become asymptomatic spreaders, right? And, and then we're, we're in a difficult position. that You really do need to get that second dose if you got the first.
2: Yes, you have to get the second dose. Uh, We strongly urge that everybody does. But remember, you know, 97% of the people that we actually have vaccinated have come back for the second dose. So while you still have, uh, you know, 3,000 people, it's a relatively small percentage. Uh, But, yes, the second dose is important. We've got to listen to the science here and just make sure that uh, we do everything possible to get as many people as vaccinated as possible. Now, one other thing I mentioned, the J&J vaccine, which has just come out, and we did, I believe, the first one in Long Island at least, uh, uh, vaccination with the J&J vaccine, that's one dose. So maybe when people know that there's a one-dose vaccine out there and we get the supply, which we're now getting, that um, that will solve some of this problem, the more and more people get the J&J vaccine.
3: Yeah. I, how, how much of this is people's fear of needles? They, you know, they're, they're in for one, but maybe not the other. And, and J&J might, as you, as you mentioned, address that.
2: Yes. And also, uh, you know, the the minority populations, uh, the black populations and the inner city populations are the ones that we have to spend an awful lot of time focusing on and using people uh, that have already been vaccinated uh, that are um, minority individuals that are out there advocating in their communities that getting the vaccine is very important. We're doing that. We have an equity task force with people from all of those local communities to try to continue to educate people, educate people that um, doing this is what will protect you from getting sick, protect you from being hospitalized. And it's unbelievably important for right now so that we can actually win against this virus over time. Absolutely. And that's why I said my parents got their
3: second dose over the weekend. And my mom told me yesterday that they are feeling great. Thank you. Um, yeah. uh, Dowling there. Ahead, uh, China linked cyber attack hitting thousands of Microsoft customers, including businesses, government officials and schools. So how did this go undetected for weeks and how will the administration respond? And the street initiating on Bumble stock today with nine different calls. We're going to break down what they're saying with the stock down 26 percent from its highs. We'll be right back. Cybersecurity stocks are in focus today after Microsoft disclosed its exchange software was the target of a cyber attack by an espionage group linked to China. Eamon Jabbers joins me now with the latest. Eamon
11: yeah john here 's what we know as of right now. this hack is being linked to china it 's being linked to a state sponsored entity that as early as January third began this attack it 's focused on Microsoft Microsoft exchange software so the idea is uh, if the Chinese can get into that exchange software they can read a company 's email uh, the the alleged hack here was described as initially very stealthy. They were very careful not to be detected. But then, as it went on into last week, became much more noisy and aggressive. So the question here for people who run companies are trying to respond to this is how do you get the Chinese out of your systems uh, if you believe that, in fact, they are in the system? The U.S. government has now been warning companies to apply the Microsoft patch and to make sure that they check their systems to be sure that the Chinese are out of there. And John, we've got a key guest here uh, on all of this as the other other attackers reportedly piled into this this same attack last week. uh, We're learning more and more about how widespread this is. So I want to bring in Stephen Adair. Uh, He is the president of Velexity. And Velexity was one of the companies that first spotted this attack in the wild and got credit now from Microsoft uh, for responding to the attack and alerting Microsoft as to what went on. Stephen, thanks so much for being here. Tell me how you guys saw this in the wild In the first place and when you first spotted
12: it yeah you mean yeah thanks for having me uh so yeah our team here at velexity um first found this in uh, late january we detected what you know we you kind of alluded to a, a pretty stealthy um and very targeted operation you know a cyber espionage operation against two of our clients um we found that back in late january and as you mentioned we've been able to kind of track this now back to you know starting as early as january 3rd um, and you know, kind of what we saw was you know, email was being stolen from these organizations, and it was something that you know, was quite under the radar, you know, in the sense that it wouldn't trigger any security you know, alarm bells, it wouldn't trigger antivirus software. You know, the actions that were being taken you know, weren't too alarming um, you know, in terms of raising any alerts. But when our team kind of dug in a bit, you know, we found, hey, these guys are actually exploiting a bug in Microsoft Exchange, the, you know, the software that organizations and businesses use to run and host their own email. Um, they're using it to steal email, and that's, that's kind of where it started off. Um, and we got that reported to Microsoft and collaborating with them. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, things changed a little bit you know, just over a week ago from you know, the stealthy attacks that we saw uh, to being a little bit more uh, you know, indiscriminate, widespread, and very noisy.
11: Well, let me ask you this, because Microsoft seems in many ways to be the obvious target here, right? Because its products are ubiquitous throughout corporate America, throughout individual homes across the country and around the world. If you're Microsoft, you know that you're going to have incoming cyber attacks. What do you think Microsoft did wrong here, that this thing uh, became so widespread as fast as it did?
12: Well, I mean, when you're a company the size of Microsoft and you run you know, these different software packages, whether it's something that you host or it's your Microsoft Office suite and, and other things, I mean, they have a, a giant surface area, right? There's like hundreds or thousands of engineers that work in these software. So, I mean, obviously no one wants to have a bug that can be remotely exploited or otherwise taken advantage of. So, you know, in a sense, it's hard to say, you know, what did they do wrong? Um, you know, I don't necessarily want to point fingers. This type of stuff happens. And obviously this has major impacts and that's not a, a consolation that this occurred. But you know, I think from the the sense that they have an entire team dedicated to taking in, um, you know, incident response, incident reports, um, and they take these things very seriously. You know, I think sometimes, unfortunately, a patch or a solution isn't necessarily, um, you know, ahead of the vulnerability being exploited wi- you know, more widely. So, I, you know, huh. in a sense, I don't know exactly. I, I'm not here to critique them, but right. you know, that's, that's kind of where it lands.
3: So, Stephen, it's, it's John Ford. Thanks again for being with us. Why do you think the hackers got noisy about this. Why not stay stealthy? Uh, Is it possible that they're looking for people to do something that worsens the impact of this attack because they're scrambling now that they realize that they've been infiltrated?
12: Yeah, well, so that's a great question. And it's one we kind of speculate to, but we have a couple answers to that. So one You know, a little over a week ago, got very noisy, and it went from just reading email to the kind of the catastrophe that's become, where businesses and organizations, whether they're giant defense contractors or banks or you know ministries of foreign affairs in different countries, down to the small business and mom and pop shops that run the server, they're not just having their email stolen; they, you know, backdoor. These are they're having ways that hackers can get into their networks and kind of you know do all kinds of things. So this Hmm. is real bad. Um, Why would that change? Um, That's a good question. So. You know, if the attackers somehow thought uh, a patch was coming or they caught wind of that somehow, I mean, that's absolutely a reason why the change in pace could occur. For example, right. if I know the trick that I have is going to end, uh, I need to go do something and make the most of it. You know, we're, we're speculating, um, but that's definitely, you know, a, a potential reason.
3: Could be expected closing time. Now, I, I, first thing I thought when I saw this headline was, was there any unusual overlap in the victims of the SolarWinds hack and the victims of this? Are they at all connected is an organization perhaps in a particularly tenuous position if it was hit by both?
12: Yes, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know we don't see any specific overlap because we think one is definitely and I believe the u s government is or is about to attribute you know solar winds to Russia um, and this is believed to be China. I don't think we believe there's any you know cooperation or data that may be passed between the two. Um, I think the probably you know the biggest or hardest spot would be organizations that run you know ran solar winds Orion and also ran. Microsoft Exchange could get a, a double whammy out of this but you know in, in terms of like specific or or tight overlap there there isn't any but it's just kind of the you know the security industry and, and, and folks in the IT industry you know they're kind of reeling cuz these are two you know massive major vulnerabilities and exploits that have been realized to do real damage in a short period of time
11: Steve. Stephen, it's Amen again. You talk about the scale of this and how people are reeling from it. And I guess the question is, what comes next, right? I mean, you know that the Chinese entity has been in a lot of these email servers now. You know that they've been stealing a lot of documents. But we haven't seen them start to exploit that yet, and that might take some time. When do you think we're going to see actual damage to these companies as a, re- as a result of all this lost intellectual property, lost trade secrets, lost classified information, and all the stuff that's been stolen actually starts to show up in the real world and impact companies?
12: Yeah, that, a great question. So the, earlier on in what we saw was very targeted to steal email. We kind of think those type of espionage operations, you know, they don't see the light of day in the sense of something, you know, that manifests like a technology being stolen. I mean, it's potential. Um, but some of the communications and things potentially give people insight into what those organizations are thinking or doing. Um, and, and that type of thing, I don't know that you'll have a definitive way um, to kind of manifest, you know, for it to manifest itself. You know, what I think the bigger fear um, and, and, you know, Valexi's been doing a lot of incident response and forensics for different companies, um, and we haven't seen this yet, um, but we're afraid that you know, this could turn to ransomware or other things outside of what, you know, the, the cyber espionage realm would be. This isn't just something that's in the hands of, you know, the, the Chinese government or potentially Chinese government affiliated attackers. Um, it's, it's now potentially in the hands of anyone um, that, you know, has proof of concept code and can exploit this. So we're we're afraid what's next is, you know, a damaging ransomware attack. Um, however, that doesn't, that doesn't downplay the, the espionage risk for the organizations that have been targeting well before, you know, a, a week ago. Um, but I, I don't know that we'll ever see it necessarily come to the light of day. But espionage of these different attackers is stuff that lexi has been dealing with for, for many years. Um, and this isn't the first time or the last time, but you know, it fits into their you know, the playbooks of these yep. different groups of what they, they typically do, though.
11: Yep, spies can be very sneaky. Stephen Adair, thank you so much for joining us on CNBC. Really appreciate your time and uh, keep in touch. Let us know what's happening next. And John, as I toss it back to you, the one thought from Stephen there that seems to be important, and we're hearing this from a lot of cybersecurity experts, is that this sort of gentleman's agreement among nation state espionage actors uh, to steal information and spy on each other, uh, but not necessarily disrupt things in the real world, that gentleman's agreement seems to be holding loosely. Uh, And the question is, which country will be the first one to break that and actually start disrupting things in the real world. And that's one of the big fears of people in this space, John.
3: Yeah, well, you know what they say about honor among thieves. Amen. thank you. Now coming up, the tech trade getting turned on its head in 2021. Momentum name slowing down while more traditional companies picking up speed. Look at this mystery chart. This gray chip stock up nearly 25% so far this year. We're going to reveal the name and whether that divide might get even wider next. And check out the Russell 1000 value ETF, IWD, hitting an all-time high. Take a look at some of the leaders in that ETF. McAfee, Haynes Brand, JetBlue, CF Industries. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. There's a new dynamic shaping up in tech stocks. Hot momentum names cooling off, while old tech, think HP Enterprise and Dell, are soaring so far this year. Deirdre Bosa has a look at what's behind those moves. Deirdre, what gives?
13: Well, John, what's old is new again, and the emerging divide is playing out again in today's market action. The hottest names of 2020, they're under pressure while the old guard continues to move higher. Now, it is the faster growing next generation tech, think AI, cloud, fintech, SaaS versus stodgy legacy businesses like on-prem software hardware, and IT infrastructure. Now, the first group was last year's Darlings, but they are getting hammered in this year's tech route as evaluations are looking pricey and risky in a rising bond yield environment. Snowflake, Zoom, Lemonade, Shopify, C3.ai, those are just some of the names, and they are down between 15 and more than 40% over the last month alone. Meanwhile, there is a gray chip revival happening. Oracle, Dell, HPE, they are some of this year's outperformers Even IBM John, which has seen years of declining revenue, has fared better than the overall sector. It's almost flat on the year. Now, their valuations, of course, they didn't run up in that 2020 FOMO rally, and they are expected to benefit as spending picks up this year. The key question, though... Are these legacy names secular, long-term bets, or are they trading opportunities for this year and this year only? Some analysts say that Fang is actually the sweet spot. Amazon, Apple, Facebook are underperforming, and they trade at relatively more reasonable multiples. And they also hit on some of those next-gen technology that is expected to be here for a long time, like cloud and AI,
3: John. All right. Well, we talked old. Thank you, Deirdre. Let's talk new again and stick with tech. Bumble now is all the buzz on Wall Street today with the stock getting initiations from at least nine different firms. The consensus appears to be well-mixed with four buys, five neutrals, no sells so far. Goldman Sachs is the most bearish with a neutral rating, a $46 price target, implying a 26% move lower from here, saying they believe the growth opportunities for Bumble are largely priced in. On the other hand... Jeffrey setting a price target of 80 a share, calling it the new queen bee and saying it's barely scratching the surface of a massive global opportunity. I remember CEO Whitney Wolf Heard became the youngest female founder to take a U.S. company public when Bumble began trading on the Nasdaq about a month ago. But since then, shares are down 28 percent from their all time high set that day uh, after going public. The stock hasn't been able to string together a positive week. If it's able to finish in the green today, it would be only the third time it's put together back-to-back positive trading days. But it did open far higher uh, than was expected. Still ahead, airline stocks flying high today as more than 59 million Americans have gotten at least one COVID vaccine and states lift restrictions. Up next, we're going to talk to the CEO of Enterprise Holdings, Chrissy Taylor, about what the return of travel means for their bottom line. Exchange will be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Travel is on its way back as more people are getting vaccinated. And as CNBC's Phil LeBeau reported this morning, airlines are returning to responding, I should say, to that surge in demand. Seats are up 30 percent. In May, 36% in June, 41% in July. That rebound in flying also means an increase in car rentals. Joining me now with more on travel in a post-vaccine economy and helping out local businesses is Chrissy Taylor, CEO of Enterprise Holdings, which owns the Enterprise, National, and Alamo car rental companies. Uh, Chrissy, good afternoon. Uh, First of all, I really wonder what impact you're seeing in customer behavior Because I know until there's herd immunity, I'm going to be less likely to use an Uber or Lyft when I travel and more likely to just rent my own car.
0: Yeah, we've definitely seen an impact from COVID and airports are down, but the road trip is alive and well. And so many consumers and businesses, the car has become the go-to mode of transportation. And so, as I said, the road trip is alive and well, and we're really taking advantage of that opportunity with the breadth and depth of our global network and also our home city location. And so people feel safe in a vehicle, they can control their environment. And so um, let people drive. And it's, it's really been... a nice uptick for us throughout
3: the pandemic. Now, have you been able to use this period over this year to use technology and and retool your operations? Has your efficiency gotten higher and in what ways?
0: Absolutely. So um, during the pandemic, using technology, you know, the low-touch to ultimately no-touch rental experience has become very important. The customer wants control. And so you've probably heard this a lot about using digital properties. And so we've been able to have customers check in online so they're ready to go when they come to our rental location and we can get them to the vehicle. Um, And so that's become the health and safety um, obviously has been elevated and we've overhauled all of our cleaning processes with the complete clean pledge and also a partnership with Clorox that has been very, very successful. And so while the pandemic has been going on, a lot of things and a lot of innovation will stick around with us for the long term, which is great for the consumer.
3: Hmm. Now, now tell us about this $100 gift card initiative that you have given them to employees to help local restaurants, not chains. Why do it? What's the feedback been?
0: Yeah, it has been awesome. So Employee Appreciation Day was Friday and we've been watching the stories unfold over the weekend. You know, it was a small way for us to say thank you to all of our 80,000 employees, both full-time and part-time. We gave them $100 to spend in their local communities with restaurants and establishments that were small and hit hard by the pandemic. So it was a thank you to our employees, but it was a way to give back to our communities and another industry that was hard hit. And the response has just been overwhelming. I've had hundreds of emails. And on Friday, we said we were all virtually close to tears. Um, But it's just it's something positive in a time when there's a lot of negativity out there. And if you didn't know, Enterprise um, was also founded um, by my grandfather and just as a one store in St. Louis. And so we understand and all of our employees understand um, the vision, the passion and the hustle behind every single local business. And so we just wanted to reach out and support them. Huh.
3: I did not know that, that it was founded by your grandfather. Uh, Great to know. Quickly, if you can, any follow on benefits or reactions that you expect to see from local businesses then using Enterprise?
0: Absolutely, we want to give back to our local communities. And so when everyone is ready to travel, Mm. um, just know that Enterprise is there for you. We are ready with a a safe and well-maintained vehicle. So we just want to be part of the community and make sure we're helping solve problems for everyone.
3: Uh, Mm -hmm. Definitely want to see people pay that forward. Uh, Chrissy Taylor, CEO of Enterprise Holdings, thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
9: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.